today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Who is the winner or losers of the USMCA deal or NAFTA point two or whatever you want to call it? Uh, I think the name change is probably what has most people's attention, what affects most people. Who knows? Uh, first of all, here's what the Prime Minister had to say about the new NAFTA. This is a good deal for Canada. It provides certainty and security as we move forward. We have ensured continued access to the North American market in a time of uh, protectionism. And here's what opposition leader Andrew Scheer had to say. The Prime Minister has made major concessions on key areas. He's made concessions on dairy. He's made concessions on auto quotas. And he's made concessions on pharmaceuticals, meaning that Canadian patients will have to pay higher drug costs. Now, we would have hoped that after making all those concessions, we would be able to see a gain on an important issue like Buy American. All right, let's bring in Atif Kabersi, an expert in international trade and uh, the economy, McMaster University, and with us now. Atif, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Yeah, my pleasure. As you've had uh, 24 hours to digest this, what are your thoughts on this deal the day after? Winners and losers? Well, there are winners and losers. There is no trade deal without winners and losers. Uh, Usually, it would be nice if the winners... uh, much uh, larger and they're winning much larger so they can compensate the losers but there is no uh, trade deal or fair even trade deal that doesn't include uh, winners and losers uh, this one is particularly difficult if you were to compare the new one the USMCA with old NAFTA uh, it's uh, a poorer uh, arrangement if you were to compare it to uh, Trump was trying to propose and change uh, NAFTA into, uh, we really stepped off a number of difficult issues and took over or uh, uh, removed that cloud of uncertainty Mr. Trump has imposed on this deal. So, in other words, it's less about the content of the deal and more of the fact that there is un- the, the, the uncertainty has been relieved and at least we can go on with something? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we stand off. He was threatening to put uh, uh, tariffs on cars and uh, the uh, auto industry and auto cars. major industry it employs over 500,000 people directly or indirectly. Uh, but the story is we have lost a few things. Uh, we definitely, uh, the other farmers are losers. Uh, we definitely, to a great extent, uh, uh, the supply management has uh, been uh, uh, failed, so to speak. Uh, but uh, we're now going to allow the Americans a larger market share, and we're going to change the price that we were trying to protect for our farmers, so the Americans will probably outcompete us. Uh, there are also issues with pharmaceuticals. Uh, we used to have uh, a patent uh, that would uh, protect those who originally produced a particular drug uh, for eight years. Now we made it 10. We shift them away from uh, the generic producers. So generic producers, people who use drugs, governments that have or hip or uh, drug plans or uh, medical plans, uh, insurance companies uh, would have to pay more. Uh, We've also uh, uh, changed the uh, amount uh, people can bring uh, online from the U.S. from $20 Canadian to $150. Uh, 
duty-free shops would lose. Uh, the retailers would find this to be uh, a unfair advantage for people who would bring similar things to what they sell and have to pay taxes on it, and they get it duty-free. So the story is not uh, totally and absolutely a win-win-win proposition that has been uh, peddled around. Uh, There are these people who are going to lose, and if they lose, like our farmers, and we have to protect their incomes, uh, the taxpayers would have to fork uh, the money. Right. Uh, Atif, it seems that the bark seemed worse than the bite here. Uh, the way Donald Trump was talking and the rhetoric and such, did we expect it to be much worse than this? Is this the best we could do? That's absolutely the best way to look at it. Uh, look, I mean, uh, a few days back, I mean, the story was uh, very acrimonious. And uh, uh, Trump refused to stand up and shake hands with our prime minister. Right. Uh, he has called the Christian Freeland uh, a nuisance. So the uh, reference here, if what Trump wanted and what we got, this is much better. But if we look at what NAFTA has given us, uh, this is worse. The only great silver lining here is that the Americans had insisted to revoke Chapter 19, which means uh, keeping the Americans uh, to abide by rules and uh, uh, norms that uh, would be challenged. Uh, but by uh, arbitration groups that would represent us and the Americans and Mexicans. It's not the U.S. course. He wanted to revamp this Chapter 19, this independent arbitration mechanism, and wanted the U.S. course to deal with. This would have been less predictable, more costly, and often uh, quite uncertain in terms of whether it would guard and safeguard Canadian interests. You said that this uh, NAFTA deal is not as profitable for Canada as the last one. Were we lucky to have the last one? What has changed here? Other than, other than Donald Trump, of course, what has changed? Is Canada more prosperous now as a result has to give up more? Right. Well, look, we've, we've, we've lost a few things. Uh, we have now yielded 3.6% market share for the Americas. We yielded in letting really our... Uh, C70 uh, price uh, protection of farmers to uh, be written down. Uh, we lost in terms of extending the uh, drug, uh, you know, generic uh, uh, yeah. companies cannot now compete until 10 years uh, uh, after the uh, introduction of the new pharmaceutical. We lost in terms of raising now the, to 75 from 62.5% uh, the uh, North American content of the car, and that 30% initially up to 40% uh, of... Uh, uh, but doesn't that help? To, doesn't that help the Canadian auto industry? Well, it, it helps it and it doesn't help it. This yeah. is really the interesting point. It will help it in the sense that now there will be less incentive for companies to relocate to the low-wage Mexico and would protect to some extent some of our, uh, you know, industries here. But uh, uh, we're not going to be able to compete against the Chinese and the uh, Indians, and they're all bringing very cheap cars into Mm. the market. Uh, So there is a real problem. Yeah, we don't move south, but now we're going to move east. Mm. Is life much different for the U.S. after this deal? 
Well, I mean, not so much, but but definitely they got advantages. They got advantages in farmers in Wisconsin who were really uh, creating the big fuss. Uh, now we'll have greater access uh, to our market. Uh, the uh, uh, drug companies will have, uh, you know, more protection, longer protection. Uh, it almost seems, Abtif, it almost seems as if the drug company deal is is better than for the Americans than the farmer deal is. I mean, at the end of the than the dairy deal, at the end of the day, they're getting another three percent of the market. Is that that much to them? Well, it is. Look, I mean, uh, this is a very large market, and we're talking about billions of dollars on the line. Uh, and then, then it's also going to mean us. We, the uh, taxpayers, we have to fork more money. Right. And uh, we, the people, uh, uh, the retailers who are selling things that compete with this uh, new raised threshold of duty-free uh, goods that could be bought online. Yeah, I mean, uh, these are not really small little amounts. In the aggregate, they become large. Right. So as a result of this, it appears today the loonies up, oil is up. Uh, I guess we can assume another interest rate hike uh, next month. They were talking about that anyway. Is the economy happy? Well, I mean, not really. I mean, look, if you look at the business community reaction to this uh, through what happened on the stock market yesterday, what's happening today, uh, we have two losing days. Uh, This may be, uh, to some extent, not fully and totally related to the deal, but it surely measures the sentiment of how the business community are evaluating this uh, deal. What about reaction from the United States when uh, a week ago there was lots of chatter about uh, slamming Canada and, and of course, our negotiation and, and Canada was taking too much from the United States? What There was a lot of senators, a lot of people upset that uh, if these um, uh, duties were imposed on on the auto industry that there would be hell to pay. So what now is the reaction with the business community in the United States over this deal? Look, the business community in the United States has made it very clear. They were not very happy with Mr. Trump. Mr. Trump is now trying to change the discourse and the importance of trade and the importance of doing business unfettered and uh, uh, with uh, uh, less uh, obstacles. Uh, but what is really happening here is that uh, Mr. Trump wanted now to brag, and you know he's not uh, immune from that, and he is also happy to brag about this being the greatest trade deal in the century. Uh, the differences uh, to us are probably more drastic. To them, it's not really uh, that important. What about uh, tariffs? Tariffs on aluminum and steel. Many thought that this should have been part of the deal, and and with this signing of the new deal, that those be removed. Uh, Oddly enough, too, uh, at a press conference, Donald Trump was was mocking those that that got mad at him for using tariffs, saying that this was a big part of the deal. Well, it's absolutely a nuisance, and I don't think it would last. Uh, Mr. Trump himself really said that this would really be there in order to nudge Canada and Mexico uh, into uh, concluding a better, and in his point, a fairer trade deal. Uh, and he anchored it not on a trade uh, reason, he anchored it on national security. I mean, he already right. said in Canada that has really been an ally and has uh, paid blood and uh, 
lots of pain being on the side of the Americans as if they are uh, a security risk. Well, the trade, uh, signing a new NAFTA deal isn't going to change national security in any way, is it? I mean, no, so, so, so why is he, why would he take the tariffs off? What guarantee do we have that he's going to remove these tariffs? Well, I'm absolutely certain that he would remove it. It's, it's not going to last. But uh, nobody knows. I mean, can you predict Mr. Trump? So why would he not, so Atif, why would he not make that part of the deal and just remove them now? Well, it, it really is puzzling. And I think, you know, the Canadian negotiators should have insisted on this uh, really uh, being revamped and he should have taken them out. It, it just doesn't make sense. Bizarre to treat Canada as if it is a national security risk to the Americans and that they have to pay for 25% on steel and aluminum. And for people like us in Hamilton, that has some direct impact on so what what sort of timeline do you imagine them re- removing these once it eventually gets signed? Do you think he's just still holding these over everyone's head until a deal is finalized? Yeah, well, I, I suppose the sooner the better, but uh, here again, it, it, it all depends on how one may be able to predict what Mr. Trump would do. Uh, certainly this is a nuisance. Certainly it's not... Uh, an acceptable proposition, but certainly and totally it's a problem. Uh, What about the Prime Minister's performance and Team Canada in handling these negotiations? Look, I I definitely have nothing but respect for our team. And uh, uh, today, you know, I'm not as convinced as they are how great, how important really we were able to uh, protect the the things that are dear and uh, uh, important to us, but uh, given what we they have to deal and the acrimonious uh, uh, months of negotiation and the uh, major demands of uh, and totally unreasonable demands of Mr. Trump, uh, they've done well. Uh, in other words, we're lucky to get away with what we had, with what we've got. Unfortunately, this is the way we have to look at it. It's not you know, possible to confer this to NAFTA because he didn't make it this way. Uh, his position was, I will impose on you tariffs on uh, uh, cars produced, and I'm going to uh, you know, make it more difficult for Canadians to do business uh, in the United States. I'm going to revoke you know, this uh, TN visas. Uh, given what he had threatened to do and what we have achieved, this is perfect. If nothing else, one of the most costly things in economics is uncertainty. Mm-hmm. And we have removed that cloud of uncertainty that Mr. Trump had introduced into the whole picture. How does this help Donald Trump in his midterms? It was interesting watching him last night at a rally, uh, a couple of rallies before he's slagging Canada to no end. Now he's loving us and saying that he's got the greatest deal that was ever has ever been made. How, how does this help him during the midterms? Well, listen, Mr. Trump is Mr. Trump. He is uh, definitely going to brag about it and... Uh, He's going to make it the greatest deal, as he said. Uh, but in terms of the actual things, uh, for uh, uh, the auto industry, it's good for the American auto industry. For the drugs, the drug makers uh, in the U.S. got uh, a better deal. For the farmers in Wisconsin, they got a better deal. Uh, for uh, uh, you know the retailers and people who... Uh, uh, you know, flood and uh, peddling the products online, he got a good deal. But in terms of uh, his uh, attempt to dismantle uh, Chapter 19, he failed. 
in terms of his attempt to, uh, uh, you know, impose a uh, tariff on the uh, car industry. He, uh, in terms of a uh, number of uh, general structural uh, issues of what trade should be, one would expect it to be, uh, he didn't get his name. How big a deal is this if you're an American? Or is this just another distraction, uh, you, know, you know, away from uh, from any other crisis that he may have on a given day? It was interesting watching the press conference yesterday. All he wanted to talk about was the new NAFTA deal. And, of course, the press couldn't wait to start asking him questions about Kavanaugh. How big, how big a deal is this in the U.S.? Well, I mean, you, you raise a good point here. There's no question about it. Mr. Trump will try to exploit this deal. Uh, as much as he could, as a diversion. You know, his situation with Kavanaugh, uh, with the the independent counsel, uh, Mueller, and the other investigations, uh, no question, uh, Mr. Trump was being cornered. This is a diversion, a situation to escape uh, from the scrutiny and pressure he had been uh, facing uh, increasingly the news being tightened around him, uh, this gives him at least a temporary respite. What can we learn from this exercise? Oh, there is a major lesson to learn in Canada. We need not to depend on one single market to the extent we depend. We have concentrated our imports and exports to the tune of almost 80% on one country. Uh, Canada must diversify its products in order to diversify its market. As long as we you know, give so much weight to cars and resources, they are very heavy. Uh, we have to sell them in the closest market we can fetch. And we have been very uh, unwilling to uh, look at outside the United States. This is a time, if there is any lesson to be learned, uh, we could have almost got into a much worse situation. But this is probably uh, the time for Canada to rethink about uh, selling more knowledge-based, weightless products that uh, geography does not dictate that we should sell it in the U.S. Atif Kamersi has been with us, an expert in international trade and economy uh, from McMaster uh, McMaster University. Atif, thank you so much for the time and expertise. Much appreciated. My pleasure. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Yesterday, the president made a particularly rude comment to a reporter. This was during, we were watching this. I was watching this live because we were waiting to take the um, the prime minister and Christia Freeland's press conference. And of course, Trump came on first. So you could tell they were waiting for him to finish before uh, the prime minister came on. And of course, he goes up and he starts talking about the, the North American Free Trade Agreement and the new one, which is USMCA. Ah, hoorah, hoorah. And... Um, and then, of course, no one cares in the States about NAFTA. They couldn't give a rat's rear end about it. So they used to start hammering him away about the whole Judge Kavanaugh thing. And then he starts getting wacky and attacking the press. It was quite bizarre. We're going to play you that clip. First, I want to play you a couple of clips in regard to uh, the FBI investigate. You know what? Let's do the clip first. Let's change these around. I was going to do them in the other order, but let's let's do it this way first. Let's Here is, and let's start with this, then we'll do Kavanaugh. 
Ellis is on the phone right now going, what the hell is he doing? All right, this is what happened at the press conference yesterday when they were supposed to be talking about free trade. Yeah, go ahead. Sure. She's shocked that I picked her. No. She's in a state of shock. I'm not thinking, Mr. That's President. That's okay. I know you're not thinking. You never do. I'm sorry? No, go ahead. Wow. Go ahead. In a tweet this all right, uh, we'll save the other two clips for later. Uh, let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, Public Relations Consulting, HuffingtonPostCanada.com. And, of course, with us now, Alyssa, thanks so much. Uh, thank you for the time, as always. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me on, Scott. So I was watching this live. As I mentioned, we were waiting for the uh, to take the, the uh, Prime Minister live. And it just seemed terrible the way he was conducting himself in this uh, press conference. Your thoughts on all of this, and 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 of course, this made certain programs, but not others. You know what? This is a bad week for the president to have a little boys' club with one token woman behind him during this press conference and smirking as he derides a female reporter. Good point. As as he is wont to do. So what it just says to us is that okay, well, he really doesn't care what, and and I'm linking the two things here. So, you know, he really doesn't care what Brett Kavanaugh thinks. This is the way he acts. This is the way he treats female reporters. You don't really see him treating male reporters like this. He's dismissive of women. He sees them very, very compartmentalized and where they should be, which is sort of like a caveman-like barefoot and pregnant in a kitchen. So, you know, he feels that it's, it's okay to be dismissive of a reporter. And the White House, you know, knew that this was not a great thing to do. And in fact, they even changed the transcript when he was, from what did he say, you're always not thinking, hmm. and to something I'll thank you. I don't know. But it, the White House themselves knew that this was sort of a, a real big faux pas. And they actually went... Look, went into the records because everything is transcripted and made sure that the transcript the transcription uh, reflected the change. Yeah, the, the transcript I have, Trump says, sh- uh, she's shocked that I picked her. She's in a state of shock. And the reporter says, thank you, Mr. President. I'm not. She sa- And he says, that's okay. I know you're not thinking. You never do. And she says, I'm sorry. And then you have to look at the, you know, the guys all standing with him. So yeah. you have Steve Mnuchin in the back, and he is literally smirking. And the other, uh, you know, old, older white men, as, as yeah. you know, he likes to surround himself with because, let's face it, that's what he is, um, you know, all agree with him. Now, I'm sure that many people, you know, are afraid to disagree with uh, President Trump, but um, I have to say that this is really deplorable and, you know, you know quite honestly, it, it, it shocks me how you and I have something to talk like about this, you know, every week. And there, yeah. there, there must be other things to talk about. But honestly, if it, what even disturbs me more, Scott, is that when I started reading the articles, and then I think, okay, steal yourself, Alyssa. You're going to read the comments now. Hmm. And then you read the comments, and, you know, you really see where the majority of the comments are quite hateful, I will say. But I still think they represent a small but vocal group of society that is like, yeah, he's okay to say that. Isn't that his, his place to retaliate? You know, they have no sense that a president of a country should have decorum, should rise above it all. No, he should, like, throw the gloves off and get down and dirty and say what he thinks and play dirty. So some of his, I guess it would be fair to term them, his base and his supporters are, are all for this bullying behavior and therefore continues to perpetuate because they like it. That's a very good point. It seems that he doesn't do a lot of Q&A, but when he does do it, it goes off the rails, mostly because it just drags on for so long. 
Um, again, he started this press conference with the intention of, of talking about the new trade deal and such. Got a, a few comments in and then boom, the question started uh, about Kavanaugh. You know, if he wants to redirect the press and he wants to redirect or deflect questions, why doesn't he get someone to teach him how to do it as opposed to pretending he can walk in there and take over without having to address this stuff in which at the end he ended up doing anyway? You know, I think that in some cases he is uh, beyond help and that his staff just says, okay, he's going to do what he has to do and we'll clean it up later. Trust me, I think that's exactly what they're thinking. The easiest thing, and, and you know, it takes about 10 seconds to train somebody to say, you know, this is, you know, I'll entertain some other questions, but really I'd like to concentrate on the NAFTA deals, or not the NAFTA deal, the USMCA deal. Again, <laughs> as you said, there is a way to do this without coming across looking like a prick. Well, but but you know he likes that persona. So yeah, and, and as you mentioned, it sells. So yeah. here's the thing. Here's the thing, Scott. So Brett, let's let's jump to Brett Kavanaugh for one quick second. You know, when Brett Kavanaugh first did his tell-all interview, he went on Fox and he played very much the choir boy. Yeah. And his demeanor was tempered. His answers were careful. But then it got, you know, it, it was reported that the White House was like, what, are you kidding me? Like, you, this is the way you're going to be? I mean, you better show some fight in you because we're not happy with this behavior. So then what happens? It comes time for his hearing, and he comes up like a blustery, yelling, petulant child, quite honestly. But as I was following the tweets from both sides, you know, reporters were saying White House sources say that they feel this is a much better performance from Brett Kavanaugh. So everything is hellfire and brimstone with these people because this is what they know their base wants to hear. That being said, there's lots of chatter. Let's play some of these clips now. Can we do this now, Luke? The uh, first clip after uh, pressure from the Democrats, the Trump administration has given the green light to expand the FBI investigation. Here's what ABC had to say. Overnight, the New York Times reporting Kavanaugh was questioned by police after a bar fight in 1985, accused of throwing ice at another patron. Press Secretary Sarah Sanders calling the story ridiculous on Twitter. This as more people who claim to know Kavanaugh come forward, like Leslie Martin Ragsdale, a classmate at Yale Law. You can't be mad or not vote for someone for Supreme Court justice because they drank in high school, but he's lying that, that he did it legally. All right, here's what Senate Judiciary member Richard Blumenthal had to say. The White House seems to be micromanaging and straitjacketing an investigation that must uncover the facts and evidence necessary to determine whether Brett Kavanaugh is qualified to sit on the highest court in the land. Uh, Alyssa, obviously some are confused as to what this is. This is a job interview, not a criminal investigation. That being said, is this less about the accusations of Blasey Ford and more about whether this guy is fit and how he's handled and presented himself in this exercise? It's become a very blurred line, Scott, and so you bring up a very good point. At first, you know, this really is a job interview. So if you think that a Supreme Court justice should bully should act petulant, should do everything except stamp his feet, and he already did cry, about how he worked his butt off and nobody helped him. Yeah, you went to like a, a private boys' school that had a nine-hole golf course on it. Are you kidding me? You know, this is the first time that this man of privilege has really been called on the carpet for his behavior because it's been excused all the way along by groups and, and, and 
teachers and by uh, coworkers who feel that this this is just the way it is, and he's allowed to act that way. So finally, when he's called on the carpet, he absolutely can't believe it. So it is an absolute front to his um, career and to the way he's conducted himself in the past. So when even he when he went to, after that senator. Um, who uh, basically she said that her father was an alcoholic and she is very well versed in what type of temperament is associated with an alcoholic. And he says, she says, did you, she asked, did you ever drink to the point of blacking out? And he's like, well, drink a lot, like to black out. Well, no, no. Did you? How about you? Did you ever drink enough to black out? And I'm thinking, <laughs> is this really happening? Can the Supreme Court justice? You What's your favorite justice actually badger the witness? What's your favorite shooter? I mean, where do you go with that? Yeah, you know, and I, I, I honestly listen. Last Thursday, I was doing all my client work while sitting glued in front of the TV. Cancelled meetings, did not leave the house, so I can see these these hearings. And when after the Dr. Blasey Ford hearings, you even heard conservative commentators like Chris Wallace from Fox News say, "This is very damaging." She is a credible witness. This is a bad day for the Republicans. And, you know, you have to say and you have to think that, you know, as a Supreme Court justice, you really should tell the truth. And there were several instances in his testimony, so to speak, that were untrue. Were you, did you watch Dr. Ford's testimony? No. Really? You just came in cold. You didn't sit there and watch it on TV. I had a hard time with that too, Alyssa, because I, I, I'm convinced he saw her extremely strong testimony, and that's why he got up on the wheel the way he did. And then there's some other interesting things that happened at the same time. I mean, you know, you had um, Representative, uh, oh my gosh, there was Orrin Hatch, and... Um, his name just flew out of my head. Who was the other? From Louisiana? No, from the South Carolina. I can see his face. Um, I'll come up with it in a second. Uh, who is a regular critic of Trump. And all of a sudden, he's up there on you know hellfire and brimstone defending uh, the president, defending Brett Kavanaugh. And you have to wonder, as, as somebody who is usually a, a critic of Trump, what turned you around so quickly unless you think you're auditioning for Jeff Sessions' attorney general job? So, you know, you have two, a, very, a dichotomy of two very different styles. You have the measured approach, and then you have the stand-up and, and scream bloody murder approach. And and really, this is all just about getting reelected, Scott. Remember, this is all just about getting reelected. And the Republicans know that should Brett Kavanaugh not be appointed to the Supreme Court, a job for life, I might add, then there will be sure ruin in November come the midterms. All right, I'm going to play devil's advocate here. What do you do when you're going for such a position, whether it's whatever country, any elected position or, or, or situation like this? What do you do when someone makes such allegations against you? Because, again, let's assume, let's assume these aren't true. Here's someone who has started a process and now because of someone's allegation has been derailed. Now there's a process that has to start. Questions have to be asked. An investigation has to happen in order to find who's telling, find out who's telling the truth and what in fact happened. But as you mentioned, the damage has already been done. So what do you do when someone comes at you with allegations like this? You know, what is very interesting you should ask that. There was a particular post and it was... Um written by uh, another blogger, and, and it was a way for Brett Kavanaugh to present a different tone and different words as opposed to, I like beer, I drank beer, leave me alone. Um, and the tone was is that 
this may have happened to Dr. Blasey Ford. I can't say, you know, I, this, this wasn't something that I myself perpetuated. I do believe her, but I do believe that it wasn't me. So I think that, number one, firstly, there's a tone and way to react and, a, and answer to these and answer to these questions because, in his bluster of the testimony, he was starting to drop other names and other places and other dates, yeah. and then there's this whole thing about here's my calendar from 1982. <laughs> oh my goodness, really? Um, you know that proves that I'm innocent. And the other thing is 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 that is what every Democrat asked him, and that was, will you not turn? to you know, the head of the FBI who's sitting right here or whatever, this representative, and say, I'll submit to a further, I agree to a further investigation. And that's what they wanted him to say. Mm-hmm. And he never would. When they asked him the question, he just sat there almost like stone-faced or in some sort of catatonic state. So, you know, you welcome an investigation. If you, if you feel yeah. that you are absolutely have been wronged, then you say, okay, well, I'm fine. I welcome an investigation to get to the bottom of this in order to prove my innocence. But he doesn't want to have an investigation because he knows what people might find out. And people are incensed enough, people that knew him and that went to school with him, people are incensed enough to say, to start coming out of the woodwork and saying, listen, I went to Yale Law School with this guy. I practice with this guy. I, I'm going to paint a very different picture than the one that he wants you to believe. So if you don't control an investigation then, you know, you get this sort of coming out of the woodwork of, of others who will start to tell your story for you. Uh, moving forward with this, why do, why do the Republicans not just move on? I mean, at the first sign of smoke, why not just say, you know what, we don't need this. There's a lot of, 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 of judges out there that have a clean background. We don't need this. Listen, why why the, keep this battle on? Because again, there is there's a tremendous amount over and above this case with with him and her and the he said she said over and above all this. There's a tremendous amount at stake politically here, and you could see either side playing real dirty politics on this. It's very hard to figure out who is telling the truth, other than the testimony of each person that we saw the other day, and no evidence. You know, it's a great question, and I wonder why um, people don't want, you know, the Republicans don't want to admit defeat. That's just not in their vocabulary. And which is also why they first uh, asked for a limited FBI investigation. Really? A limited? So what, you get three questions and you're, oh, and you're not allowed to ask this person, but you are allowed to ask... Mark Judge, who we know is going to deny everything. So, you know, they're trying their very best to control all of this. And honestly, unless Senator Jeff Flake wasn't cornered in that elevator by those two women. who Wasn't that something? Well, you know, and he was just, honestly, he could barely look at them. Yeah. And he, and listen, he's not even up for re-election. He, you know, what does he have to do to save face? I'm sure they've got into a room and say, listen, we don't care what you do. We don't care if you're not in politics. We'll ruin you anytime you... You know, anywhere, anyway, right. whether you're in politics or not. So, you know, so he he they get this they get this investigation it was supposed to be sort of mollifying and make them look like the good guys. Okay, we looked, we didn't find anything. It's almost like they told them to sit in a room with blindfolds and shut the doors and the lights, then come out after a week. So, yeah, you know, honestly, it, it, some of this I think is a bit of a charade. 
Um, On you know, that note, how do you find a credible witness here? I mean, what are we going to do? Line up and have, you, you know, uh, a week of he said, she said? I mean, how do we find a critical, uh, a credible witness in this sideshow? You know what? Honestly, Scott, this is, this is who you want to believe. And I'll be straight up with you. I believe her. Yeah. I believe that this happened. So when you say, how do we find a credible witness? Well, I'm pretty sure you have one. Right. It's just that the Republicans don't want to believe her. They say, well, it was a long time ago and you don't remember. You know, when a woman, when a man suffers a traumatic event, whether it was yesterday or, you know, 15 years ago, trust me, if it's traumatic enough, you can certainly remember the details as if it happened all yesterday. So do we make, do we believe, how, how do we decide who to believe when they make such accusations if we don't do an investigation? Well, I, I think mean, if you're again, going to give a testimony, which is really riddled with falsehoods. You know, when they asked him what certain um, phrases in his uh, uh, profile at the yearbook meant, what does boofing mean? It means drinking. No, actually, it doesn't. Um, what does devil's triangle mean? I, th- I thought they could have had a lot more fun with that on Saturday You know what? Life. Well, listen, and, and devil's triangle does not mean that. It's, it's you know, yeah. it means two men and a woman. Right. So, uh, you know, if you want to start to sanitize your profile, um, doing it while you are under, under oath is probably not the time to do it. So when you say find a credible witness, well, I got to tell you, I don't think Brett Kavanaugh is that credible. But at the same point, same, by the same token, the people who support him don't really care. That's their man, and that's who they want in. But, you know, everybody who has any sense of memory remembers that when Obama put up, a, I think it was Mark Garland, for um, Supreme Court Justice, you know, the Republicans wouldn't even sit for a hearing. They refused because they knew in a couple of years they might have a Republican president and they'd be able to choose their own Supreme Court justice. So while they, you know, um, attacked the Democrats for playing dirty tricks, I mean, take a look in the mirror. You guys invented them. But you know what? At the end of the day, as you mentioned, this is all about getting the balance for them on the, on the Supreme Court. You'd think they just do something to get somebody through who's compatible on both just so they could get there. This well, just draws more attention into what they're up to. But, but they're making it quite clear. And, you know, women as a whole need to understand that what's happening here will affect them and their reproductive rights. And quite frankly, it could be any rights for till the end of time, honestly, because it is an appointment for life. I thought so, it was quite touching, though, when he said that his daughter was praying for the woman. Yeah. You know what? If it's believable, I thought that was a great line. Wow. Uh, Alyssa Freeman, public relations <laughs> consultant, Alyssa Freeman PR. As always, thank you for the time, Alyssa. Have Love a great you, day. Scott, you, Scott. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Have you been feeling much more sleepy on afternoons like this when it's kind of gray and dreary and, you know, it could be the October sleep slump. What the heck is that? Let's bring in Brooke Hohen Adele, owner and of Bedtime Beginnings, a sleep consultant, and is with us now. Brooke, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Hello. Thanks for having me. What is Bedtime Beginnings? I am a sleep specialist here in London, and really what I started my business for was to just get people back to sleep. I struggled myself when my firstborn was a few months old, and once I found a solution for it, I just felt that I needed to help the rest of the world get back to sleep. Are there? It's amazing that, that uh, we need sleep consultants. Why do we need sleep consultants? Why is something that is so natural so difficult? That is a great question. Um, really, most of our issues stem down to behavioral issues, right? A few of us do have, you know, medical concern. 
Um, but really our daily lives usually get in the way of our sleep. So as you just said it, it is a natural thing. We all need to sleep. We will actually die if we don't. Um, but just our day-to-day activities. So when it comes to kids, it's often our, us as parents and we're trying to help our kids sleep, which then has kind of a negative effect on their ability to, you know, figure it out on their own. Um, but then as adults, you know, we do things like drink coffee or stay up too late or watch TV until, you know, 11 o'clock right until bedtime. And it's things like that that can impact our sleep. So sometimes people just need a bit of a reset to get them back on track and kind of uh, teach their body how to love sleep again. Do we appreciate sleep? Do we respect what it does for us? I can think of people who will brag or I've talked to over the years who will brag. Oh, I don't need that much sleep. I get up at four o'clock every morning. I go to bed and I don't need that kind of sleep. Are, are there people that need less? Do we have a stigma about sleeping too long? I love that you bring that up because, you know, really when we talk about sleep, it's almost always in the negative, isn't it? You know, Yeah, it's a waste are, of time. Exactly. Or people are bragging about the fact that they pulled an all-nighter or they can, can survive on five hours of sleep. And, you know, at short term, yeah, you probably can. I can too. Um, but I can tell you, I don't feel the best when I do that. Um, So, yeah, there's a bit of a stigma against sleep. Um, A lot of it kind of boils down to the Industrial Revolution, if I can kind of go back a little bit, because what happened with the invention of the light bulb is now we could work all of the time. Um, And because we could work all of the time, sleep really took a a backseat to, you know, our whole health because work was more important than sleeping at that time. So it took us a few years as a society to realize, you know, kind of the negative side effects of that lack of sleep. So, you know, we do have varying kind of degrees of how much sleep we need. But as we know, kind of eight hours is the suggested sleep uh, or sorry, amount of sleep as an adult. And that is what I would recommend as well. Uh, you talked about the Industrial Revolution. So that that being said, do farmers have better sleep? Do they get better sleep? Do they get more sleep considering, you know, they kind of get up and down with the sun? Yeah, right. Well, you know what? Honestly, the sun is the best way to kind of regulate our internal circadian rhythm, which is our body clock. So back before the invention of the light bulb, um, we really did have kind of two phases of sleep. We would have our first sleep and then we'd have this natural waking in the middle of the night and then we'd have this second sleep. The difference now is when we wake in the night now, we're frustrated, we're annoyed, we're angry, and our cortisol and adrenaline levels rise because of those emotions. Whereas back in the day when, you know, we had this natural bake, it was actually welcomed. It was a nice time for, you know, babies were created during this time and all of that kind of nice natural stuff. So, you know, when it comes to farmers, they're working harder. They're going to, their sleep demand is going to be higher. They probably, I can't speak for all of them, but they probably hit the pillow and they're out and they probably sleep very hard um, because they work so hard during the day and then Mm. get up with the sun, which is a great way to do it. You talked about getting up in the middle of the night in sleep patterns. I don't think I understood that. Yeah, so again, our the invention of the light bulb has really changed the way we sleep because, you know, going back to obviously being able to work longer hours, we right. don't have to go to bed when the sun goes down anymore. Right. Um, there was a man, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, I apologize, but he did an experiment, it was just within the last few years, and he actually essentially went camping for three weeks, and he just lived with the sun and the daylight and his body went back into this natural cycle of waking through the middle of the night because he just didn't need enough sleep to say go to bed with the sun right. at, at say 8 p.m and then sleep through till you know eight o'clock in the morning so yeah so obviously the different seasons adjust this 
uh, with exactly. in the winter longer sleeves, in the summer shorter. Hmm. Uh, uh, yes and no. So it, yeah, and a bit of a different quality. So there's something called um, hypersomnia, and it's kind of it's the opposite of insomnia, where you almost sleep a little bit more. And mm-hmm. it's common in the fall, um, where you know people can sleep to up to two hours longer. But it's not necessarily a positive thing because it's the quality of the sleep. So. They're getting their, you know, they're in bed longer, but they're not necessarily getting as much of the deep sleep, which is the good sleep that we all need. Um, so, yeah, sometimes we almost feel more sluggish because we've been in bed a little bit longer, but we haven't had the same quality of sleep as we would have in the summer where we're outside a lot more. We're working harder. We're, you know, maybe out playing and doing stuff like that. And then we, you know, we hit the sack and we just fall asleep and we sleep right through the night. Uh, I've really noticed it uh, with my family as the days are getting shorter. Uh, we were eating much later. Now it's like, oh, my God, it's pitch black and we haven't eaten yet. It must be 10 o'clock at night. No, it's only 7. But still, uh, it really does change uh, how you live. Now, days like today, where it's kind of gray, it would seem if you know if you hit your alarm and said, I didn't have to go to work today, you could sleep another couple of hours. But you're not necessarily going to feel any better. Right, exactly. You know, if your body needs it, I would. I, I'm a very big promoter of sleep. I'm sure you could have guessed that. Um, so if your body is telling you you need it, you know, you, you might as well welcome it if you have that opportunity. If, you know, it's been kind of two, three days and you're still finding this pattern, there's a good chance that, yes, it's because of the other and, you know, you're just not getting that quality of sleep. So this time of the year, is there, uh, is there, is there a certain pattern for the month of October? Are we going through something now as the days get shorter? Yeah, so again, it really goes back to our circadian rhythm, our internal body clock, and the fact that our days are getting shorter. So because there's a reduction in the amount of sunlight, um, it affects our natural body clock. So what happens is we just don't, um, uh, as the light's kind of entering our eyes, so this is how we control, regulate our circadian rhythm, because we're not getting as much of it, our body just adjusts, you know, differently. Um, and the other thing that kind of goes along with that and with this reduction in daylight is that we're really not outside as much anymore. You know, we're kind of the first ones to say, oh, well, it might rain today or it's kind of getting cold. I don't want, you know, I don't want to go for that walk. We're in the middle of the summer. Yeah, we would have done that. And of course, when we, you know, have less movement, our bodies just aren't as physically tired. Going back to the kind of farmer example you gave, we're not as tired and our bodies just don't sleep as well when we're not as tired. Um, a really kind of simple suggestion for that is to really, you know, just get out around lunchtime, especially on a day that's nice. So I'm here in London, the sun's not shining too bright today, but on a day where there's a little bit more sunlight, if you can get out even for 15 minutes and walk around, you know, the apartment building or the office building or something like that, it really helps to cement your circadian rhythm so that you can have a good anchor for, you know, not waking up in the middle of the night and having that natural ability to fall asleep. Is there something as a October sleep slump as we change from an exciting summer with lots of activity and little sort of regulation or rule and then boom, September, back to the kids, but it seems, you know, hockey, this, that, it seems we're back to a structured lifestyle. Yeah, which is great. That always, you know, I always recommend that um, a regular bedtime and a regular routine. So, so with September, like you said, we have the back to school, all these 
awesome germs are now floating around everywhere. All the kids are getting sick, which means the parents are getting sick in the office. And then I feel that a lot of that, you know, just kind of lingers into October. We're on October 2nd now. I know we have some stuff going around our house. And yeah, it just takes a toll on everybody. Uh, what do you do to combat this? Uh, should you, uh, you, you talked about more light staying up. I mean, should you do this or should you go back to nature and in the wintertime retire a little earlier? If your natural body clock allows you to go to bed earlier, I say go for it. Um, I am a morning person, so I can fall asleep. I would, Honestly, I could probably fall asleep at 9.30 every night and sleep through. Um, whereas, for example, my husband is kind of more of a night hawk, so his body clock is later. He could fall asleep at 11 and sleep closer to probably 9 in all reality. So you have to go with what your body says because if – say him, if he's going to try and go to bed at nine o'clock every night, he's going to drive himself crazy because he's just not naturally ready for bed. So, you know, if you're tired and if you can fall asleep, then that's a great suggestion. If you're not, though, and you don't have to wake up for work and you have that option to sleep a little bit later, then embrace it. Uh, you bring up a valid point. Does though Do those that start their day earlier and get up at the crack of dawn, uh, do they have different sleep patterns to those that might be night owls? I mean, obviously, they're sleeping at different times, but does it do anything to the quality of sleep? Yeah, so it depends on, so if, say, a night hawk has to get up really early to go to work, it's going to have a negative effect. There's kind of no no doubt about it. Um, if they're not going to bed earlier because they can't fall asleep, which makes sense, but they still have to get up at, say, 5.30 in the morning, they're going to be missing out on sleep. And, you know, we have great things to help us get through our day, like coffee and all that great stuff, but... Um, you know, that's just a Band-Aid. That's not actually helping us. It's just kind of pushing us through so that we can survive these these moments. So, yeah, I'm a big promoter of sleep. So you kind of got to just do what your body tells you is right and, you know, sleep when you can. What about kids and adolescents? Uh, lots will say, and I remember when I was an adolescent, my dad would have a hard time getting me out of bed to mow the lawn because he would yeah. want it mowed at 9 o'clock. And I'd say, why can't we wait till noon? Uh, so what is yeah. different for adolescents? You know what, I love that you brought this up because this is something that's really not talked about a lot. And, you know, even if I can say this out loud, our school system, you know, really doesn't do much for our kids in the fact that a lot of the high schools start really early. So what happens when, um, you know, these preteens turn into adolescents and kind of go through all those changes that we love? Um, our bodies change and it's almost that our circadian rhythm is shifted. It's almost two hours later. So what happens to these kids is if they've been normally, you know, been getting tired around nine o'clock at night or eight o'clock at night, now their body isn't tired till 10 or 11 o'clock at night. So, you know, they're maybe hanging out in their room, maybe on their phone, who knows, and they're maybe in bed, but they're just not able to fall asleep. So then, you know, the alarm clock still goes off at the same time and they still have to go to school. So they're again, getting cut short on kind of both ends. So, I was the same way as you Um, on the weekends. My dad always wanted me to get up and kind of help out. And, you know, I respected that. I understood it as much as I didn't love it at the time. But my best advice for kids of this age is to let them sleep in on the weekends and try not to overschedule them because, you know, they're not being lazy. They're just tired. Their body needs to sleep because they're going through a lot of changes. And because of that body clock change, you know, switch to a bit later, they just need to sleep in. Were you always a morning person? 
Um, not when I was a teenager and yeah. not, it usually shifts around kind of your mid twenties and then you become, you know, what we consider more of an adult in terms of your sleep. So I wasn't around then, but yeah, I really have been other than that. Uh, what about banking time, sleeping in on the weekend? I can, I can cut it pretty short during the week. And then as long as I just sleep in, in the weekend, I, I'm good. Can you bank sleep? You can catch up to a certain degree. So banking ahead of time, um, no, but catching up, yes, to a certain degree. So we all really walk around with what we call a sleep debt, whereas, you know, obviously over the years, we just haven't gotten the perfect amount of sleep for our bodies every single night, which of course makes sense. So, you know, we all kind of walk around with this sleep debt, this backpack full of bricks. And we can chip away at it. So if you've had a, you know, a crazy week where you just haven't been able to sleep as much and you have an opportunity to sleep in or take a nap in the afternoon, it's a great idea. Your body needs it. Um, it's not going to, you know, get you right back to ground zero as, you know, a baby. Like with babies, we can repay their sleep debt because it's maybe only been five months that so they haven't been sleeping that well. But as adults, you know, it's hard to kind of repay it um, totally, but it's definitely worth a try, especially if your body's telling you that you're tired. Go lay down and have a sleep. Is a nap beneficial? Is there a problem when they're too long? I remember when I was in morning radio, man, it was like anytime there was a flat surface, I'd be lying down on it. Um, yeah. <laughs> and it seemed if you didn't get into a regular routine, man, you were just done. Is, is there benefits to a nap? What's too long? Yeah. So generally speaking, if you don't have a lot of time, that cat nap is great. So um, 30 minutes is what if I ever have an opportunity during the week to have a nap, I'll set my alarm for 30 minutes. I'll lay down. Sometimes I have to kind of talk myself into napping. Uh, the first stage of sleep is really, really light. It's comparable to me falling asleep every night on the couch watching a movie. I barely, you know, even realize that I'm asleep. Um, so when we're going down for a nap, a lot of times we'll talk ourselves out of it. We'll lay there for a few minutes and then we'll think, oh, well, I can't fall asleep. And then you've talked yourself out of it. Now you can't fall asleep. So just kind of talk yourself into it that, yep, you're sleeping. You're going to be asleep soon. You're going to wake up in half an hour. And sure enough, your alarm will wake you up in half an hour. The half an hour time really helps you to not get into the deep sleep. The deep sleep is, you know, when your alarm goes off and you just feel horrible. It's because your body's been in that really deep sleep and now you've kind of been brought to the surface of sleep and it just it doesn't feel good. So if you can cap it at half an hour, it's a nice amount to still obviously get a few Zs, but not get into the deep sleep. If you have more time, though, then I would suggest over an hour. Um, an average sleep cycle in an adult is 90 minutes. So if you can have that much time to kind of get a full sleep cycle in, then by all means, go for it. What about screen time? Last question. Yeah, you know what? This is kind of one of the biggest um, issues, I would say, that's kind of becoming, um, you know, more of a factor day to day now. We'll work all day in front of a computer, then we come home, turn the TV on, then we check our phones, as you know. So the blue light um, that's emitted from cell phones, all these devices, even, you know, LED light bulbs, um, really impact the melatonin production in our body. So light enters through our eyes, it directly affects our brain's melatonin receptors, and it just doesn't produce as much. So my suggestion, if you can, is to try and put everything down about an hour before bed. Um, it just helps to, you know, create those beautiful melatonin hormones in our system so that we can fall asleep easier. 
All right, uh, Brooke Hohen, Hohen Adele has been with us, owner of Bedtime Beginnings, a sleep consultant, talking about October and the days getting shorter. And man, sometimes it's getting tougher to get out of bed. Yeah, uh, it sure is. Brooke, thanks so much for the time, as always. Much appreciated. Thank you so much for having me. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.